Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Just uh, recently I uh, read a, an article in the newspapers about um, uh, Princess Kate in England um, having a... Um, and I think she was actually... The picture showed her actually holding a tarantula and I think it was someone's pet. And for me, the, the concept of having a pet spider just... Oh dear! <laughs> I think uh, really I'm an acrophobic. That is, yeah, I'm. I'm I certainly don't uh, like spiders. Um, where we live, of course, um, we have some quite deadly spiders. Um, we live in an area where there is the uh, Sydney funnel web, and we've had these uh, shiny black. Spiders uh, sometimes come into our house. They seem to get under the door and um, I've caught them uh, walking uh, around the floor in our house. Of course, they can be quite deadly to uh, humans if you don't get the anti-venene um, in time and understand their bite is quite painful. We also have the redback spiders uh, around our house. Um, in Australian literature, a lot of jokes and cartoons about redback spiders and the old-fashioned toilet seats when toilets were outside, um, pan-type or drop-type toilets. And these, uh, again, I understand can give a very painful bite. Um, they're usually not deadly to adults, but they can be deadly to, to children. And of course we have um, another notorious spider that I never actually heard much about as a uh, when I was a boy, but um, now, uh, over the past uh, 20 years, knowledge about them has become more well-known, and that's the white-tailed uh, spider. This spider has sort of an elongated body with a little white uh, tip near the end of its um, abdomen, and um, when they uh, bite, they're uh, not so much, you know, deadly poison, but the the poison seems to cause the flesh or cause a wound where the skin just continues to deteriorate, and the um, the effects of the spider can last a very long time. It can be very difficult to cure the bite. It, it just seems to continue to eat away the skin in the area and uh, cause ulceration and, um, and so forth. Um, and of course other, um, you know, spiders, uh, you know, we have other spiders that um, of course don't in inject uh, venom. And I, the, the only time I, well, I've been bitten by uh, spiders, fortunately not uh, ones that are, are venomous. Um, I remember one time um, splitting wood and uh, picking up a piece of wood and there was a very large huntsman spider. Now these are, are quite a large spider, not as big as a tarantula but similar hairy brown spider that's found under bark of trees and they can grow uh, you know, quite large, the size of the palm of your hand or even larger and uh, I remember when I was wearing leather gloves, thick leather work gloves and I remember the spider bit in um, to one of my fingers on the glove and I could feel the pressure in the glove. Um, fortunately, it didn't pierce the leather, but it was certainly a, a very strong bite. 
And, of course, the other way spiders can affect us too, where I've been bitten by a harmless spider, again, while gathering um, uh, bushes, um, is that when they bite, they uh, and even though they mightn't inject venom, uh, they can have bacteria and uh, that bite can get infected. And uh, I did get a quite a severe case of cellulitis uh, in my leg from a, a spider bite. But when we th- one of the things as a, as a chemist that fascinates me is that the chemistry involved in, in spiders, they have some really uh, amazing chemistry. And um, quite recently I was reading an article by Dr. David Nelson um, it was called Design Spiders and Integrated Holes and it was a chapter published in um, the book I've mentioned it before Design and Catastrophe 51 Scientists Explore Evidence in Nature and, and it, it is a really good uh, book if you're interested in um, you know, scientists explaining scientific examples for amazing intelligent design in nature and uh, Dr. David Nelson is a uh, is a biologist, and um, he one of the things that he studies is um, how in nature systems operate as wholes, like there are there are systems, and he uh, points out that as as he teaches in the area of biology, he that textbooks often fail to emphasise the, the fact that in Biological systems right across the board, um, we have in- integrated holes. So in other words, the biological systems are made up of many little systems, little factories, machines, but they interact to form a complex system that works. In other words, the, the living organisms are built up of a whole lot of functioning parts that work together to make the whole system work. And um, he, he said that he points out in uh, this uh, chapter on design in spiders that um, while the most textbooks, secular textbook or authors, uh, favour a reductionistic approach uh, which supports their evolution thing, um, you know, approach that all these bits evolved in little bits, but really... Um, it, it can't work that way. And also the probability of all these different systems just happening to, you know, evolve at the same time just, you know, doesn't, um, you know, it's, it's just statistically impossible. And all living systems have these holes. And um, one, he, he says one of the really fascinating examples of this are, are spiders. And um, they possess amazing chemical systems. So and and this is something that attracted uh, me. So spiders, of course, are fairly unique among the uh, anachronids in that they uh, possess and they use silk. Um, and of course, we talk about you know spiders' webs and and uh, you know spiders producing these webs. Um, but um, it's interesting that spiders have up to eight different silk glands. And each is capable of producing a unique type of silk. 
And that's something I, I didn't realise before. And so you think about that, that the, and you, you know, you know, walking around the garden, you're brushing to spider webs and parts are very sticky and parts are, are not sticky and parts are, you know, really, really strong. Um, he also says that almost every structure a spider makes from silk is composed of many of these different silk subtypes. Now, of course, I've recognised a couple of different types, but it's, um, I didn't realise that there were so many different types of silk involved. You know, one of the things that has uh, fascinated scientists, and, and scientists really don't have an answer for, and that is that how particular types of spiders, particular species of spiders, weave a particular type of web. And, um, you know, like you can often uh, recognise a, a funnel, funnel web's web. And then, of course, we also have another poisonous spider. It's not quite so poisonous, called a trapdoor spider, where this spider actually uh, digs a hole in the ground and then it makes a little trapdoor or makes a little covering, again, out of uh, a type of silk and seems to cover it with dirt and so forth. And so when you're looking along, you can just, if you're very careful in places, you can just see that, oops, it almost seems like a little circle, maybe a centimetre up to two centimetres in diameter, depending on how big the spider is. Um, And, of course, the spider will sit under that. And when an insect goes past, when it senses this vibration on the top, um, it will sort of pop the lid up and jump out and, and grab the um, the little insect or lizard or whatever that a little lizard or whatever is going past. Um, and again, though, how do spiders know to weave these particular types of of webs? Like we have all weaver spiders in our garden as well, and you can recognise their webs and the pattern in their webs, the way they meet with their webs, is the same. So how does little baby spider grow up and know that that's the sort of web that it needs to um, uh, to to weave. And you, when you think about it in the in the chemical process, right? So if you have the evolution of these different glands, right? And and the chemistry that is involved to make the compounds, like for stickiness and and so forth. And how does a spider? How did it? you know, by process of random selection and this sort of thing, weave these webs, use the stickiness in the right part and didn't stick itself up um, and and so forth. And how come they're, they're all the same? And how does this, um, you know, this ability to weave the same? Um, there was uh, a scientist uh, at uh, Cambridge University a number of years ago wrote a book uh, called, um, oh, no, I've just forgotten the name of it now, but anyway, Rupert Shadrake, Dr. Rupert Shadrake, he, he talked about how them he called it morphogenic fields, how there, there must be something that, uh, some non-material factor that is involved in, you know, guiding spiders to make their, their webs. Um, and, and he said the, the same thing, how does a, say, the European cuckoo, it lays its eggs in another bird's nest and then the parents fly to South Africa 
how does that little bird, raised by some other species of bird that perhaps stays local um, in England or Europe, and grow up and then know to fly to South Africa where it meets up with all the other cuckoos um, and its parents down there. So, you know, there's some fascinating um, uh, things um, uh, there in that that, again, scientists can't answer and you can't really explain in terms of um, uh, evolution. It's interesting too when you talk about spider venom and we know, for example, the you know, funnel web spider is quite, uh, quite deadly. But it's interesting that the funnel web spider isn't deadly to dogs and cats. So dogs and cats have a metabolism that will break down the venom very quickly Whereas, um, and it's quite fascinating, of course, that uh, dogs and, and cats can't eat chocolate. And one of the reasons for that, particularly dark chocolate, which uh, has a compound in it, theobrobine, which is a heart stimulant. Now, um, in humans, when we eat it, we break down theobromine quite quickly. And so it's not usually harmful to us. I mean, for, for some people... Um, they can, um, you know, chocolate can affect them in that way, cause rapid heart rate and so forth. Uh, but it can be quite deadly to dogs and cats, whereas the funnel web uh, toxin is very deadly to humans. But again, because our body doesn't break down the toxin very quickly, uh, whereas um, in these animals it, it does. So it, it, there's some fascinating chemistry involved in all these things. As a matter of fact, spider venom is composed of hundreds of and possibly even thousands of different types of proteins um, and amines and, and, and different other components. And this is really, really uh, fascinating, the chemistry that is involved in these different venoms and the fact that they have um, different um, uh, effects. In fact, um, there was uh, quite an interesting uh, book on uh, spider ecophysiology um, that was published by a number of uh, authors. Um, it's a, a textbook, Spring of Egg Leg, published in 2013. And on pages 191 to 202, um, some scientists, Netwig and, um, and, and Netwig, um, they have a, um, an article there on the main components of spider venoms. It's, it's quite fascinating. There's another very interesting uh, paper too that was published in 2015 um, and the authors uh, um, involve um, Dr Nelson, the author of this article, and uh, Cooper and Hayes. And it was a, an article um, published um, in The Strategic Use of Venom by Spiders, and that was a chapter in evolution of uh, venomous animals and their toxins. So, of course, it's interesting, and this is an interesting case how, again, when biologists publish papers, they've got to publish it in the context of evolution, even though, in actual fact, personally, they may not um, believe in evolution, but it's not going to be published if it's published in the, uh, from a, an intelligent design 
um, area. So there's some uh, fascinating uh, references uh, there. That one on the spider venom, of, of course, just to go over that again, uh, that uh, the name of the book was Evolution of Venomous Animals and Their Toxins, and that's uh, published by Springer uh, in 2015. It was pages 1 to 18. It's interesting that, um, of course, the venom and the silk do their work often when they're combined. And so we know that, uh, for example, some uh, venoms of, of spiders, so if the spider captures the animal in its web um, and, it's, and it quickly uh, wraps it up, uh, then he injects it in with something that preserves it. So the, the animal, my understand, doesn't necessarily die straight away, but it's sort of put in a, a state of... Um, uh, un- unconsciousness sort of thing. So the other fascinating aspect of um, of spiders is how they acquire their information. And they have a number of specialised uh, sensory organs um, and chemosensory hairs that are on the outside of their body. Um, and these amazing sensory organs are integrated with the hydraulic muscular system. And while in this particular uh, article in the the book Design and Catastrophe, the author, Dr Um, uh, Nelson, doesn't go into the detail, he he makes the point that every behaviour in the spider is the outcome of sophisticated integration of among all of the spider's individual system. And he points out it's an interesting observation with spiders that a spider can choose to inject venom and that was something that came out in that article that I just referenced last one that I referenced and if it chooses to inject venom it can actually control the amount of venom injected which is you know quite astonishing you know when we think about spiders there's there's so many you know fascinating aspects um of this. Uh, I mean, you know, when you think about spider silk, it's one of the most fascinating of natural structures. Um, and scientists have been impressed, you know, not only by its uh, structural properties and chemical composition, but also by the way the spiders control its uh, synthesis. And this has come to the attention of um, um, a guy who studied uh, material science at uh, one of the uh, Max Planck Institutes in Germany, a Dr. Rivellino Montenegro. And um, he uh, writes about the fascinating material that um, makes up uh, spiders' uh, webs um, and how uh, spider silks are among the strongest and toughest fibres known to science. And it's, again, these um, silks use a really wide array of proteins. And so the proteins, uh, you know, are synthesised. Um, they're able to... Go in, the bi- in the spider's body, the spider's able to construct the silk, these silk fibres that can vary tremendously in their mechanical properties... Uh, ranging from um, a, a, a type of ampulate silk with a tensile stress 
rivaling that of steel to um, uh, a flagelliform type silk with uh, a stretchiness approaching rubber. And um, again, as we mentioned before, there's all these, he talks about all these different types of, of silk that can be, uh, of spider silk uh, that can be um, uh, produced. But it's interesting that spiders not only know how to change the chemistry of their silk, but also the diameter of the thread. So spiders can dramatically change their own uh, weight and size by, I guess, and they can actively control the diameter of silk thread spun under different environmental conditions, increasing the load-bearing capacity of their drag lines. I mean, (laughs) this is amazing, and so evolutionists have to believe that all these amazing systems arose by chance. And one of the things that fascinates me is when you think of the proteins that are involved in making these different types of silk, right? So the codes to make these proteins are in the spider's DNA. And so the spider's DNA has this code made up of, we know, four different letters, AC, that we abbreviate the names of the chemicals to A, C, T and G. So combinations of these letters, right, enable a, um, when they are carried by the messenger RNA into the ribosome, the ribosome uses that code to assemble amino acids to make the proteins that make these fibres. And so this amazing code, the, the structures of these fibres, the structures of these proteins, uh, which are made up of chains of amino acids, are encoded for in this DNA code. Now, really, scientists today can't write a code to make a new spider silk. Um, and so evolutionists have to believe that the codes that made these amazing spider silks all arose by chance... But hang on, in order to make these silk, they've got to be the little reservoir, you've got to have the, the little spinneret that uh, enables the uh, silk to be stored or generated um, and then released, the, the muscles and the control systems to vary the diameter, and then all the nerve fibres back to the little brain of the spider to be able to control all these things. All has to be encoded for in the DNA, all this design. So and I, I think, you know, it just becomes so clear. When we drill down and just study the detail in biological systems, it just overwhelmingly just screams out super intelligent design, way beyond anything humans can, you know, come up with. In, in design because, you know, we, we can make mobile phones and we can make watches and we can make televisions and we can make jet planes, but they don't reproduce and make themselves. The living systems reproduce and they make themselves. We have to construct them each time. And so to think that you can have a living system, so, you know, the little baby spider... Um, you know, develops inside its mother body and then 
hatches out. I, I don't know if some most of the spiders I know of uh, give fly birth to spiders. Um, the form from those little cells from the gamete cells in the male and female spider and grow into these spiders with the ability to do all these different things. Um, it's interesting that uh, a fundamental question about spider silk is not just the physical chemistry basis of its fascinating properties, but the origin of the sophisticated silk synthesizer inside spiders, and which, again, is able to fine-tune the desired silk composition and thickness for a variety of applications. In, and uh, they list them hunting, sheltering, flying or ballooning. <laughs> and, um, you know, so we have these amazing structures in spiders. You know, um, the silk is crucial for the survival of the spider. And so which came first, the, the silk or the spider is the point, um, you know, the author makes. It's interesting, he talks about the DNA analysis. Um, this is Dr. Montenegro. He says, the analysis of the DNA sequences coding for the C-terminus, also known as the carboxyls terminus, or the CWH terminus of spider silks proteins, from a range of spiders shows a high level of similarity, which is usually interpreted to suggest that many silk C-terminals share a common origin. But similarities among different spider silk genes may suggest they share a common ancestor. But the evolutionary relationship among functional homologies are unclear. And so this is the way evolutionists think. They think that um, because there's these similarities that they all evolve from a common ancestor. But we need to remember that Engineers use common design systems, levers, cogs and so forth in lots of different things that are totally interrelated because they work well. You know, evolutionists don't have an answer for the origin of spider silk. And silk spinnerets are not found in any postulatory evolutionary ancestor. Um, and they're only found in certain insects and in spiders. And so we have overwhelming evidence for unique design in spiders that, to me, points to a creator, an amazing creator, God. And that creator, God, if he can create these amazing creatures, can recreate us after we've died again to new life. And that's what the Bible promises that this life isn't all there is, that there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger picture involving the supernatural creator who is outside space and time, who has a plan for us. And that plan for us was revealed through Jesus Christ, the Saviour. You can read about it in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. You've been listening to Faith and Science and uh, remember, if you want to re-listen to these programs, um, just Google 3abnaustralia.org.au and click on the Listen button. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day.
You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.